I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm joined today for our podcast by Jeffrey Sachs to discuss his new book, The Ages of Globalization, about the history of and the prospects for global economic integration. He has many titles and achievements, but he is Professor of Economics at Columbia University, a prolific author, an authority on economic development, amongst other things, and has been an advisor to four successive heads of the UN. So welcome, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you, Martin. Thank you so much. So I really enjoyed your new book. It's really a, a huge topic. I wonder whether we can start off at the highest level by asking you, how has globalization unfolded across the centuries? What have been its main driving forces? The main uh, driving forces of these ages of globalization are breakthroughs, typically breakthroughs in technology, uh, breakthroughs in uh, the way we organize uh, our material civilizations, whether it's the breakthrough of agriculture, domestication of the horse, ocean navigation uh, that circled the globe, the steam engine, or the digital revolution. These, I think, have been the fundamental drivers, but each age of globalization has been a transformation of institutions, of ideas, of the way we interconnect across the globe. And could you perhaps list briefly for us to give us an orientation what those seven ages, each defined by a technology, was? I start with the dispersal from Africa, from our common home about 70,000 years ago, and discuss the uh, formation of uh, modern uh, humans uh, uh, in that dispersal as they spread out across the world till about 10,000 years ago. Then is the Neolithic Revolution, uh, the birth of agriculture and the birth of uh, human settlements. Around 3000 uh, BC is the domestication of the horse, the invention, as it were, of the automobile of the age, which remarkably transformed uh, politics, the scale of uh, human activity, long distance uh, trade, the nature of uh, governance. Uh, following that is the classical age, the age of uh, the great empires, driven to a very significant extent by the emergence of new ideas and uh, perhaps by the invention of the alphabet itself. Certainly, the uh, written text fundamentally transformed uh, many regions of the world and led to new forms of statecraft. I consider that uh, classic uh, age to cover uh, roughly from 1000 BC to 1500 AD, so a very long stretch of uh, imperial expansion and imperial uh, conquest. But as Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nations, uh, the two most significant events in human history uh, occurred at the end of the 15th century, 1492 and 1498, when uh, Columbus made his way to the Caribbean and Vasco da Gama made his way around the Cape of Good Hope to India, in fact, uh, to Asia through the Indian Ocean. Now the world was interconnected by uh, ocean navigation and uh, the transformations that resulted in every way can only be uh, put in superlative terms, not necessarily all in excellence, but in terms of the scale, the depth, the, the profound transformations of ideas, institutions, the birth of global capitalism, and far more. The next fundamental breakthrough, certainly the single most important invention in modern history, uh, is James Watt's steam engine, which is uh, often dated to that famous year 1776. 
but whatever the exact date, because it was a sequence of improvements that Watt had made on Newcomen's steam engine, by the end of the 18th century, the birth of the industrial age had taken place. And basically the fundamental change of being able to draw on fossil energy, not just organic energy. And with the scale of uh, energy inputs into economic activity, we had the first uh, time in uh, human history, uh, dramatic, sustained economic growth, what we now call endogenous growth, driven by one technological advance after the next. I claim that the seventh age of globalization uh, has started at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, moving from the industrial age to the digital age, driven again by the fundamental breakthrough technologies made possible by Alan Turing, uh, John von Neumann, the computer, the transistor, the integrated circuit, global connectivity. Uh, but wow, with this uh, pandemic, we have been rushed dramatically far faster than even the dramatic changes that were already underway into a new global digital economy. I'm sometimes asked these days, is globalization over because we're going to close back in, shorten supply chains and so forth? And I would say absolutely not. We're in a different kind of economy rather suddenly of an extraordinary proportion of our economic activity uh, taking place online, and I think with profound implications uh, for how the economies will unfold in the coming years. Well, thank you for that incredibly comprehensive uh, scan of technological and economic history there. My uh, history teacher at school did his best to persuade me that history wasn't just one thing after another, that there was actually a pattern. Globalization has had pattern of benefits and costs over time. How would you characterize that repeated pattern of benefits and costs? I think that there is an arrow of history, actually, because broadly speaking, though with some significant exceptions, we don't lose the know-how that has been gained. There are reversals. Uh, the disintegration or the conquest of the Roman Empire did lead to uh, a dark ages uh, in a real manner. Technologies were lost. Know-how was lost. Economies uh, that had operated at continental scale reverted to the local manor, to the local village. So reversals are possible, but broadly speaking, we have learned over time. We've learned laws of nature that turned out on a hypothesis uh, of Francis Bacon in England in the early 1600s would prove to be fundamentally transformative in enabling humanity to meet its material needs and wants uh, in an improved way. So I'm a technophile. I am by nature an optimist. You can't read history, though, without it being overwhelmingly bloody and uh, with uh, so many missteps, mistakes, uh, zealotry that turns awful. But there is an arrow of increased know-how over time. I think the sad part is that technology by itself does not connote moral improvement. Almost every one of the breakthrough technologies could be used for war, for plunder, for destruction, as well as for human benefit. So we know how to do things better, but we also know how to destroy things better. 
Well, let me ask you about that arrow of history. I'm wondering whether, and you anticipated this question, we're at the end of that journey in the sense that super exponential expansion, as you describe in your book, has resource constrained limits. And also, if I understand the projections correctly, population growth rates are trending down, maturing, even declining in some places. So I wonder whether the same type of progress is, uh, is, is possible in the future. We have been on basically a program of more, more things for the last 225 years or so in the industrial age. And uh, the sheer scale of human activity of uh, production is extraordinary. But we have hit in the current technological program what are rightly uh, known as the planetary boundaries. We have so deeply impinged on Earth physical processes now, especially the functioning of uh, ecosystems and uh, now, of course, uh, the climate itself, that there is no more margin, really, of just more. The only margin is better, smarter, higher quality of life, more well-being more happiness, uh, to use uh, essentially the, the concept that Aristotle introduced as our aim in life 2,300 years ago. So we have passed through the age of scarcity. It's really astounding. The average output on the planet measured in international prices or so-called purchasing power adjusted prices is now around $12,000 for every person on the planet absolutely astounding. There is no case at all for having any kind of extreme deprivation from all basic needs from adequate nutrition, clean water, clean air, access to education, access to healthcare, access to modern energy services, access to information. These really can be assured ubiquitously uh, and universally. We can honor the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the world's nation signed in 1948, assuring that in human dignity, every person on the planet would have all of those goods. We have, in other words, uh, ended uh, in the phrase of John Maynard Keynes, the economic problem. But uh, we have not reached uh, the kingdom of heaven, as it were, because uh, we're human beings uh, filled with our weaknesses and human institutions uh, filled with the uh, massive injustices, uh, inequities. So we are a rich world with some places of astounding wealth and other places of still astounding poverty. So if we've solved scarcity, at least in aggregate on, on average, what are the challenges that define the, the current age, the digital age? The challenge in a world of post-scarcity is first to ensure that it's truly a world of post-scarcity for, for everybody, each part of the world. Alas, this is not quite the case. Though the world is rich in the aggregate, there are a billion people who still struggle for survival. They are in some kind of extreme deprivation. I've spent about a quarter century looking at and working on that problem. My conclusion has been it is utterly solvable with just a bit of generosity and uh, enlightened self-interest by those who have to help those who do not to get on the ladder of development. 
But alas, <laughs> finding that bit of enlightenment is not all that easy sometimes. So that is the first problem. A second challenge fundamentally is to live within the planetary boundaries because we are in, in a economic program, a set of institutions designed for more, not really designed for better. Even how we measure things, we know that the gross domestic product, our single most referred to indicator of economics is so profoundly flawed. It's only a shadow of a measure of well-being at this point. So we're wrecking the planet and not really paying attention to doing that. And we have leaders in powerful countries, including the United States, who absolutely disdain or reject what is happening in front of our eyes, which is life-threatening destruction. The third great challenge is, interestingly, the one that Keynes, who is, uh, for me, uh, iconic uh, in this regard, referred to in his uh, absolutely delightful and uh, just a sheerly brilliant essay on the economic possibilities of our grandchildren that he wrote in the depths of the Depression in 1930, when he said we would reach the end of the economic problem. Uh, he said, what will we do with our lives? How will we enjoy our leisure? What will we find as the value of our life when it is not the vocation of work, work, work of the so-called Protestant ethic, which he said was a kind of perversity that served an economic purpose during a phase of history, but could not be the ultimate objective of human activity. It may seem perverse to talk about that question at a time of current economic crisis with this pandemic with so much uh, poverty uh, that still abounds. But the truth of the matter is we could have greatly enriched lives around the world with more access to education, to culture, to leisure time, to uh, higher quality of life if we choose to do so. But we will have to have institutions that really are directed towards that well-being rather than being directed towards the multiplication of the gross domestic product, which is really how our political economy has been organized for a couple of centuries. Let's focus down there a little bit. You list five solutions in your book to the challenges of the age, sustainable development, social democratic ethos, subsidiarity in the public sphere, subsidiarity and the definition of the public sphere, reforming the United Nations and ethics in action. My question is not about the solutions, but about the meta problem, if you like, which is what does history tell us about whether we will avail ourselves of these solutions? As I see it, we have become so incredibly intensely interdependent that the defining aspect of our digital age is and maybe there is a metaphor in as well as an example in COVID-19 which is that uh, a pandemic encircled the world in a matter of days, whereas uh, it took, uh, by historians' estimates, 16 years for the bubonic plague to spread from China to Europe in uh, the 14th century. Uh, so now it took 13 hours, uh, and uh, we had a, a global pandemic. We're intensely interconnected, but we are not uh, intensely organized for that interconnectedness. And we carry with us I believe, the very hardwired tendency to self-identify in a local group, 
and to view uh, the outside groups uh, as uh, a threat, a danger, an enemy. And this is uh, now a pretty received idea of evolutionary psychology that the us versus them distinctions are quite hardwired. So I see the fundamental questions for us as how can we cooperate at a global scale and how can we find the underlying shared ethical idea that now we're past the age of scarcity, let's calm down, let's share adequately, and let's uh, reform our institutions for better lives uh, as a, a general proposition for a world of 8 billion people. It's a tall order, especially since there seems to be an overdrive to find new enemies each year or each uh, decade. It was the global war on terror. That's almost forgotten now. The new Cold War is the Cold War with China. We can't seem to end a Cold War without wanting the next one. And so the idea that we should be globally cooperative and that there is an underlying common ethos uh, that with China, with Africa, with South America and so forth, we could all find uh, together is viewed as, I'd say, naive uh, idealism by many people, but I view it as both a necessity and absolutely uh, a practical need. I'd like to ask you more about this collective action problem. When I was looking through your solutions, I guess that was the one that I scratched my head most about, which was the new institutions to solve common global problems. You mentioned reforming the UN. Do you think that reforming existing institutions is enough? And do you think we can innovate our way around the experience of climate change in recent years, which is tremendous efforts, tremendous rhetoric has been put into setting common goals, but we're really unable to arrest the acceleration of the carbon dioxide release until almost as a, an accidental byproduct of the uh, COVID pandemic, we've um, done so to some extent. So what, what is the institutional innovation, our best hope for institutional innovation to solve the collective action problem of truly global problems like global warming? I think the fundamental problem of most collective action in the sphere that we're talking about, which is uh, mainly the economic sphere, is the ability to mobilize resources collectively. At the national level, we do that through taxation, or at the local level, we do that through taxation. But when it comes to global public goods, we have almost no reliable mechanisms other than markets to uh, allocate resources. And this has been, for me, uh, the paradox and the puzzle. I, I understand it, but I, I don't approve of it, and I don't uh, want to settle for it, which is that if you look at the amount of cross-border transfers as a result of public policy, say, official development assistance or money directed for the global climate change, it's a pittance. And the uh, hang-up for me over the last 25 years working on poverty, for example, is I've led one study after another showing, oh my, for uh, half a percent or one percent of the income of the rich world, the problems of extreme deprivation for billions of people could be solved. And those are good calculations. I've done it with the IMF, with the other uh, very reputable uh, and I would say very level-headed institutions coming up with the same numbers. 
But mobilizing something like a 1% of our gross world output or 1% of the output of the rich world, which, uh, by the way, is about $500 billion a year, is extraordinarily difficult. We don't have global voters. We have national voters. It's not so hard to mobilize even 40% of national income at a country level for public spending, public services, public investment, and so on. But try to get one hundredth of that for transboundary, and it is just incredibly difficult. The European Union is a good example of this. Typical country in the European Union has government spending and revenues roughly on the order of 40 to 45 percent of GDP, but the EU budget itself is 1% of the European-wide domestic product. And uh, that's a little bit crazy because so many of the EU's real challenges, whether it's uh, decarbonizing the energy system, building a modern information a grid, addressing pockets of poverty and so forth, require a European-wide response and a European-wide budget. And it turns out it does come down to the budget most of the time. When it comes to global public goods, it's even harder because the UN, wonderful normative institution, no access really to financing uh, except through a kind of uh, sophisticated begging. And uh, this just doesn't do for the problems that we really face. Well, let me explore one strand of a possible solution. It may not be the main strand, but it may be one that is most interesting to our audience today which is the role of corporate philanthropy and uh, corporate social responsibility. So in recent years, I think we've, we've had a sincere focus on corporate social responsibility and then materiality metrics and uh, more recently purpose and the declaration from the business roundtable on multi-stakeholder focus. Is this enough? Of course, corporations were not primarily created for this purpose. I think there's a realization in there own interest, their self-interest to look after the, the, the context as much as their performance within the context. Where does, where does corporate capitalism need to go next for its own sustainability and to be part of the solution? I think there are two aspects of this. One could say a somewhat narrower aspect and a somewhat broader aspect. The narrower aspect is that every serious company that wants to be around had better understand uh, issues of climate change and sustainability uh, more generally in the environmental sense and sustainable development uh, in the even more expansive uh, sense. Why do I say that? Because the world has agreed on a set of objectives like the Paris Climate Agreement or the Sustainable Development Goals for a real reason. And that is that these goals are not just niceties. They are extraordinarily important for human well-being. And they are not necessarily understood that way. Take the Paris Climate Agreement. Climate change is absolutely real, dire, even existential uh, in terms of uh, our uh, global civilization and economy. Of course, many politicians laugh it off because they are politicians of petrostates or of coal industries and so forth. And many companies might say, well, yeah, but what does that really mean for me? I'm going to continue down the course that I'm familiar with. But what I would say in this narrow sense is understand those goals because the world will come to them, maybe too late, maybe abruptly, 
maybe in a jolt. But if you continue to invest in hydrocarbons right now or continue to invest in coal or continue to invest in the pipelines for that industry, you will be stranding assets big time. So I think that this is uh, the first point that these goals that have been set may seem naive because they don't have teeth. They don't have enforcement. Uh, again, it's a, a UN normative proposition that doesn't have the money behind it necessarily. But since I uh, can tell you in 20 years of deep involvement in this, the mere fact of these agreements is a truly powerful signal that we are urgently in need of actually achieving that. And what it leads me to see time and again is the world comes around, usually late, but it comes around. And so take the goals as true signals of where we're going. But I would also go farther, and that is stop doing harm. And there are so many companies that advertently or inadvertently do harm. They sell products that are not healthy. They sell products that are addictive. That's often a good marketplace after all. Uh, they sell products that are polluting or destroying the environment. And they are in supply chains that they're not aware of uh, that have huge problems up to and including slave labor, child labor, bonded labor, impoverished people, mass deforestation, and so forth. So my view is that the essence of the business roundtable statements, beyond understanding that these goals are true, shared, important goals to guide strategy, is stop doing damage. You know, being a saint, okay, I love that. But I think we would go a very, very far way to where we want to go if businesses would take seriously ensuring that they are not part of supply chains that are doing harm, either because of, of the nature or use of their products or because of the nature of the production processes, whether it's the social or the environmental aspects of those production processes, or because of the supply chains that they're in, maybe outside of the immediate corporate sphere, but their suppliers, for example. And as part of that, do no harm. It also means do no lobbying for socially destructive objectives, even if it's legal to do so. And for the bottom line, we need companies paying taxes. Uh, we need companies being good corporate citizens. We need companies to stop lobbying for the rights to pollute or the rights to create harm. Those rights can exist legally, but they are not what a company should be about. So changing gears slightly, you listed seven ages of globalization, and there does seem to be this arrow of history logic of geographical and economic expansion and uh, urban concentration, uh, according to technologies, which eventually create new problems and trigger the next stage. Is, is there a next stage of globalization? Can you look ahead and foresee the next inflection point? Uh, if we can get through this uh, current uh, phase of learning to uh, be uh, fair, happy, and sustainable uh, in the digital era and in an interconnected world, that I think will be a great achievement for the decades ahead. History does teach we gain new insights and uh, new technologies and new ways of uh, understanding the world and our role in it. So I'm sure there will be an eighth age. 
But I didn't even speculate in this book because the seventh one is perplexing enough for us, the one that we find ourselves uh, thrown headlong into right now. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us uh, on the history and prospects for globalization. I'd strongly recommend your your new book, uh, The Ages of Globalization, just published by Columbia University Press. It's a very good read on a very important issue. So thank you very much, Martin, thank you. What a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much.